Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, we, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first day hour is general discussion about media and virtual production. Our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today, uh, we are going to be talking about Dante. And because of that, well, not just because of that, we've got some more experts here talking about audio. This is a great day. Wednesdays are a great day to ask questions about audio. You can ask questions about anything you want. But audio is a good one for today. Wednesdays are our audio day. And I'd like to point out uh, to Courtney. I got the oscillator in there. That's all. That's all I'm saying. Just right Did you get a that. signal feeding to it? Did you get Not it yet. powered up? Yeah. Not yet. It's that's the next step. It's just in the right place now. And now now we're gonna get a we're gonna signal to it next. I can't wait to have it moving and doing things. All right, let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Lois, what do we have? Vic Fernandez from Springfield, Missouri says, when you step away from work and just want to listen to some great music, what headphones and DAC, if any, do you prefer? Go ahead, Jeff. This is probably going to be a really disappointing answer from an audio engineer, but uh, I work on great audio systems as part of work. So when I step away, it's usually for convenience and it's usually AirPod Pros. Go ahead, Javier. Uh, kind of the same to me. I use uh, the boy the Bose NC like the noise cancel when I'm outside. I really like them. But when I'm gonna like sit and just enjoy music, I also use a pair of AKG 240s that are like not so expensive, but they're like really comfortable because they have like plushy things. And so I really like those AKGs. Go ahead, Mitchell. I love the uh, the Sony 7506s. I know they're good because they say professional on them so that must mean something and uh also my uh, DAC is a uh, I use an RME it's behind me RME 80T2 has the uh the high powered headphone jacks on it, it just it's nirvana it really sounds great go ahead Jason as a lifelong audiophile um if I'm going to take a break from work as far as I'm concerned it's the camera or in this case the DAC and the headphones you've got doesn't really matter and uh Courtney uh, I listen to analog, so there's no DAC involved, and MV6 headphones. Uh, and these days, you know, you find if you've listened, listened on headphones for many years, it can affect your hearing. So I shy away from headphones and listen to it on my uh, Google Home, which has a pretty good speaker, or my full-size Alexa. Go ahead, Lois. Well, if I'm not needing these things for being here... I take them off. I don't wear headphones. I just play music in the room so I can dance around and go to any room and still hear that lovely sound. Good, though. I consider headphones a little bit like Mexican food. Some people like it really spicy. Some people like it really mild. And I think both are valid for individuals. I know that in my case, um, I don't want reality. I don't want musicality for the ones I use for things like the show. I want to be able to hear problems. So I need accurately in certain ranges, accuracy, like in the speech range and things like that. It's been surprising to me. I used to put my headphones on every day for the mic checks, but I have learned my little in-ear monitor well enough to understand that it doesn't have a lot of low end, but I can still hear when it's getting down there and see if there are problems with that. So interestingly for me is that I've learned the sound of various headphone combinations and my brain is somehow able to translate that. I uh, I have to admit, I my, for me, if I really just want to go away, I have these eye, these light blockers that's like a little headband that has like a little cavity for your eyes and you put them over top of it. So it just it's all the light goes away. And then I have the just the, Air, the AirPod Maxes and I lay in my hammock 
and I listen to music. <laughs> and it's just, I just go away for a little while. Usually at some point I fall asleep. <laughs> so next question. Mike Edwards from Brooklyn, New York uh, says, excuse me, something jumped. What are your thoughts on the new Stream Deck Plus? I uh, Go ahead, Mitchell. I love the knobs on it. I think it's a great idea because there are some applications where you might want to be an audio mixer and it works best when you have a knob to adjust the, uh, the levels. Um, I love the fact that you can swipe it and change the pages uh, either on the knobs or on the, on the buttons. Um, that makes it uh, handy. So I think I'm looking forward to somebody doing a companion interface to um, like uh, a Mixpre or something else that can be controlled remotely. Um, it, that makes a lot of sense. Also, if you're a, um, um, a picture grader, uh, colorist, you know, again, having a knob is the best way to make adjustments on all the parameters. Good, Sky. I think the criticism was that it needs to be bigger. But again, what I've noticed in the link that they were sent was they did it in comparison or in combination with the existing uh, stream decks that are out there. So I too, yes, I come from an analog world of touching something and, and watching it uh, move when I twist it. So that's where I also appreciate the knobs. Yeah, Bill. I just think it's kind of interesting that, you know, Apple got a ton of guff for the uh, touch bar on the laptops for many years. And now we've got a mini touch bar on this. And it's going to be interesting to see whether people have the same issues or whether people actually find that useful because they weren't. It's not a brand new scary concept. Well, I think the problem was with the Apple one is that you constantly hit it by accident and there's no way to just turn it off. You know, like it, for me, the, the problem with that bar was that I, I would constantly, something would happen because my, my hands just happened to, you know, touch that. And you don't realize how often your hands were touching above the keyboard until, uh, until you had the Apple keyboard with the, <laughs> with the touch. And then you just, you're constantly like sending mail by accident and sending other things. And, and I just, all I wanted to do is have a button that turned it off. Like, just make this piece of glass. I, it's fine. Just want to turn it off. So it is interesting to see what happens there. I'm super excited about it. I can see a control panel for for office hours where you had everybody's names pop up, you know, across the, you know, you made two of those or three of those. And you could sit there and change people's volume, the volume for their their input and so on and so forth with these little sliders. I think it'd be kind of cool. So, um, so anyway, so I think there's a lot of possibilities. Next question. Scott Mueller from, I'm sorry. Scott Mueller from Germantown, New York writes, what kind of systems and devices are out there for surround and Dolby Atmos for a Logic Pro X and Adobe Premiere based Mac? I'm working with a pair of Genelec 1030As on an Apollo Twin and an X32 Dante mixer with DVS on my Mac Studio. Go ahead, Jeff. So if you're just going to work on headphones, you're okay with just the uh, Apollo Twin. But if you're going to work with speakers, you're going to need more than your pair of Genelex. Of course, you're going to need at least uh, at least three more, probably uh, maybe nine more, and a subwoofer. But the combination of DVS, Dante Virtual Sound Card, and your X32 is great because you can feed up to 12 channels out of your Mac to that, and you could... Uh, Build a patch in your X32 that allows you to run to 12 outputs with a controlled uh, linked gain that you could turn all of them up and down at once. You could basically turn your X32 into a monitor system. There are some dedicated monitor things, um, but you'll be uh, there's the JBL Innato 24, which I think has just been discontinued, unfortunately. People are trying to grab them up. And then there are consumer 
high-end pro uh, uh, audiophile receivers that will do that. But uh, you have balanced outputs on your X32, so you can get 12 outputs via Dante Virtual Sound Card to your X32 and do matched gain. And then you could use the delays and the EQ in the X32 to do any kind of speaker configuration you want uh, to set. If you have a speaker that ends up too close to you because of your room, you can actually move it phys- uh, virtually backwards away from you by a little bit of delay about a millisecond per foot. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, Jeff is right. Um, I salute your uh, selection of speakers, Scott. I've got a pair of these uh, Genelex uh, in my studio, but here's the thing, as Jeff was telling you, you're going to have to buy a bunch more uh, Genelex speakers and at about, what are they, about $2,000 a pop? Uh, that's going to be expensive. I Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, that sounds awfully complex. If it were me, Mr. Simpleton, I would just get me a Yamaha or an Onkyo uh, AVR, audiovisual receiver that supports Dolby Surround. It has all the individual outputs for to driving the speakers. It has the amplification built in and just hook up the HDMI output and put the Dolby encoded uh, signal, uh, you know, the Dolby Atmos signal on it, and they, they both support Atmos. And you're done. <laughs> we've had we've had some issues with bass management related to that. Yeah. So if we're listening to it as this is what we're going to use as an output, um, then uh, then the AVR to a set of speakers. And if you're going to get if you're going to get a sound bar, uh, the um, the Ambio the Sennheiser Ambio is definitely the high water mark of that of that process. Um, but there are a lot of less expensive ones, but that's the best one um, by far. Um, we've tested a lot of them and. Um, the otherwise, um, the AVRs are fine for listening to the final output there. But when you're actually developing the stuff here, there's some stuff that the AVR does around base management of moving stuff into it. And most AVRs will do this and some will let you turn it off and some won't. And so they're processing something that makes it hard. So I wouldn't pass, I wouldn't author something passing through an AVR. I would only author things with a raw connection to the speakers. Um, so it's just something else to, to um, consider but- there. But wouldn't that tell you, if you're using an off-the-shelf consumer product, tell you that if you're doing something wrong, this is what the consumer is going to hear it as? You eventually want to listen through an AVR. You're absolutely yeah. right. You you want to listen through an AVR eventually, but you don't want to. It just it really it creates this weird. We've just dealt with this. It creates this weird curve that you're trying to hit because that's your AVR, and not all the AVRs are the same, and how they manage that is not. You know, you think it should be, but it's not. And we've had. A lot of meetings about that. So, 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 so anyway, um, so I would, I would stick with, uh, you know, I would try to do that. I'm using not very expensive ones um, for what I do. I have the, um, the Yamaha 305s. They're small. They're not quite as powerful to reach spec um, for it, but they are, you know, I was able to get them for 300 bucks each or $250 each. And they're not, they're not going to be the Genelex, but they are, if you're trying to figure out where things are, it's, it's pretty good. Now, next question. Paul Wall, who's from Austin, writes, Unreal Engine 5.1 was just released. What are the new features and how can it be integrated into office hours? Uh, you know, the, I, I don't know what's, I don't know what was added from 5.1 to 5.0. I mean, the, the, basically the geometry engines are greatly improved. So the lighting models and the geometry engines are greatly improved in the 5.0 and above, but I'm not sure what 5.1 adds. Um, you know, I, I look at, at, at Unreal as something we, may use eventually for graphics and maybe some virtual sets and so on and so forth, but we haven't dug too deep into it yet. Next question. 
Andy Kokendorfer from Vera, Florida writes, we have found working with our staff that a dock is necessary for USB peripherals power and available ports. We usually recommend OWC, but are there other quality docks? Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I would recommend the OWC, especially for Mac. If you're on a PC, I've bought several of these and had good luck with them. They're uh, Abawazi. I, I guess that's how you pronounce it. Uh, and it has a plethora of outputs on it. It has USB-A, USB-C, it has VGA, two HDMIs, micro SD, analog audio, uh, gigabit Ethernet. It's uh, about 66 bucks on Amazon, Abawazi. Had good luck with them on on almost most of most PC laptops uh, that have USB-C outputs on them. Good sky. I originally went with what I found at, at Best Buy, and it was the J5 Create, and it. I have gone through a couple of them. They last. They did seem to last about a, a year exactly, but for a hundred bucks, that was. Uh, not bad, semi-portable for my my MacBook Pro. I was introduced to this uh, smaller portable OWC uh, by Peter Sargent, and it has multiple Gazenzas, Gazouts. It it is USB-C as far as the connection, but it's nice and portable and lightweight and fairly robust, and also does have the Ethernet jack in it if you if you need that. And then of course I do have the big beefy OWC uh, for my office station here, which is something you would want if you're going to be locked down, but not nearly as portable as something like that. And uh, sorry, I got lost in my monitors here. I go with Mitchell. Yeah, I can't tell you how many different, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, ports and ducts and things I've used and not had great success. I'm sure there are other ones out there other than the OWC, but I ended up here and I've been happy. I'm not really interested in looking back. So OWC just seems to have it covered, especially for Mac, but they do have it for PCs too. Next question. Guy Cochran from Seattle writes, any news from InterB? And he has a link there. I have to admit that I didn't know that uh, inter what InterBee was until Guy asked the question. Uh, this appears to be a Chinese-based um, conference, on, and I'm going to guess on on computer on computer graphics. I, I got into it, and when I first opened it, it was all in Chinese, so I had a hard time. Uh, you know, I have a feeling that what Guy's pointing towards, and hopefully he has some hints for us, um, uh, that, uh, you know, this is where you see a lot of things before you see them. There's a... In, in CES, by the way, there's like a there's like a whole section that's the Chinese merchandising, you know, group. You know, I think the government of China pay, pays for all these little booths that are in CES. And it's always like walking into the future because there's a whole bunch of the weird things. They're looking for distributors. And it's where you see all these little hubs and all these little chargers and all this other stuff that's going to come out in a year or two when someone actually, you know, decides to distribute it. But it, uh, my guess is this is similar to that, but I don't know anything about it. No, next question. Scott Mueller from Germantown, New York. My workplace jumped ship to Adobe Premiere when a less than fully functional Final Cut X was released. Have people gone back? Are editors expected to know all platforms? Good, Mitchell. Um, I wouldn't give up on Final Cut just yet. I think you'll do well with it. Um, just if you had one problem with it, doesn't mean you're going to have problems with all iterations. Um, I can speak for the Adobe product line. I like the fact that uh, Adobe Premiere uh, is well integrated with all the other Adobe products, whether it's uh, Adobe Audition, After Effects, um, uh, Illustrator, Photoshop, etc. Um, you're going to do okay in all of those. I've, I have them all. I have Final Cut. I've got Adobe uh, uh, 
illustrator, uh, you know, ad nauseum premiere, and I also have avid media composers. So you never know what a client's going to come up with. So if you know at least a little bit about all of them, you'd be able to do uh, conversions between a Final Cut Pro project and an uh, Adobe Premiere if you need to, or even with Avid. Good, Sky. I, I have different opinions than Mitch. As a freelancer, having to use these tools, I've been forced to learn all of them. And if I wanted to make a living, uh, I it, now I have the luxury of choosing. And because I was working in a companion uh, situation uh, with multiple users, and we didn't ha all have uh, the the exact same hardware, yeah, I went with Premiere. And it, it is a traditional linear, non-linear editing system. And Adobe does support it because that's their job. That's where they make their money. So uh, you're not going to be losing anything, but you may need to retrain your, uh, if you only have Final Cut 10 uh, editors, yeah, you're going back to a traditional non-linear editing style, which is... Well, I think that they're in Premiere now and they're wondering whether they should... Go back to Final Cut. I think that's the issue. Okay, what, you know, it's going to be a, it's going to be different. Yeah, go ahead, Jason. I'd say if you're a professional editor, proficiency is probably a good thing to maintain and to have. Um, but if you're a good editor, um, people will work with you. You know, under any circumstances, however you need it. Um, and you know that, of course, is is the ideal. Um, I personally prefer Final Cut, but it's just because I'm so practiced at it. Good, Bill. I think it also depends on what you want your career arc to be. And that's all of them you can be a professional editor in. I mean, for the past many years, the top tier editors usually used Avid. Um, then Final Cut, the original Final Cut came in and took a big chunk of their market away because it was less expensive and pretty fully featured. Then Premiere came back up when Final Cut went to Final Cut 10. And so now you've had those three. Then DaVinci came on with Resolve. And so there are four majors out there that I think a lot of the work is done. And for me, it's just a matter of if you want to fill a seat in somebody's operation, you use what they tell you to. Same thing as if you're a machinist and they have a particular uh, kind of metal bender, you better know how to operate their machine. Uh, if you are not in that circumstance, if you want to create content on your own, then you have more flexibility and more options. And one of the other NLEs might fit your personal style better than a different one. I'm uh, very in, involved in Final Cut 10 and because it makes me a lot faster than I ever was before. I mean, I literally took orders of magnitude uh, jumps in terms of getting content out, but I have the luxury of not having somebody over my shoulder saying you must deliver files in this format and not all editors have that luxury. So I just think it depends on what you want the, your career arc to be. If I was going as a YouTube creator, I would definitely move into something like Final Cut or uh, resolve something that's in the more modern code. Uh, but if I mm -hmm. wanted a seat in a big facility, I'd go with one of the big juggernauts because that's who they're going to hire you. Yeah, go ahead, Douglas. So I was just wondering if all of those four major things come out with the same final product. Uh, kind of. Uh, it, it, so what I will say is that in Rec 709, probably, you know, and in, in <laughs> I think that as soon as you start going somewhere else. So what I've I've, I've worked in all of them, not at, I, I will admit I haven't done Avid uh, very recently and Premiere I've not done. In, seriously, I've not worked on a serious project with it for a decade. 
Um, but what I will say across all of them and across people that we work with, if you want to get a job in the, in Hollywood, you're going to use Avid or Premiere because that's what a lot of the big houses are using. Um, Avid for the largest things and Premiere for that second tier down um, and sometimes first tier, but not very many. Um, people are pretty embedded in, in Avid. Um, the uh, people who are not getting paid by the hour use Final Cut. Like, you know, so they're, they're, you know, so when they're, so when they need to, you know, so what we see that for is creators, a lot of creators use Final Cut because um, it's faster, you know, and when I need to do something fast, I use Final Cut to, to knock that out. And I can do some stuff that looks really pretty. I can get things done really quickly. There's a lot of things that are just boom, 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 boom. Uh, when I need precision or if I'm working in HDR or I'm, you know, there's a bunch of other, you know, or I might need to use Fusion, which I just did recently then I'm gonna use Resolve. And so for me, the two that I go back and forth with the most are Resolve and Final Cut. So Final Cut, when I when I have a relatively simple project that needs to be done relatively fast, I find that, you know, um, that, that Final Cut's just easier to get it done quickly and get it out. When I start talking about, I'm gonna have a ton of audio tracks, I'm gonna have a ton of, and I'm gonna have to manage my, I'm gonna have to have color management that, that makes sense. And I'm gonna have to do all these other things. Then I start, you know, especially if I'm gonna do HDR, but even if I'm just doing, tweaking that color to where I need it to be. I don't think that uh, Final Cut's, you know, surround and HDR tools are very well developed. They were, they got ahead and they put them out quickly and then they, they didn't develop them very much after that. So, so I think that, um, uh, so I think that that's, so anytime I need precision work and I, and I think that that leaves Premiere in kind of a pretty unhappy place because what we're seeing is a lot of people picking up, they're either doing Final Cut as creators uh, and then even some creators are picking up Resolve, and a lot of folks are picking up Resolve because it's it's a one-time cost. <laughs> There's no, you know, and and I will say that having all of the tools, once you get used to how to use them, I have to admit that I opened up, I, I had a project where I had to do a comp, you know, and I have done comps for edits for a long time, where you build it in Shake or you build it in something Nuke or you build it in whatever, and then you and then you render it out and you bring it back in layers and then you you put it into your edit and then you figure those things out the process of doing the effect shot in in fusion and anytime i want to change it or make it time a little bit better than for what i had simply double i clicked on it and i went to the fusion page and then i opened up fusion and i was like okay now i could do you know add more particles here and do this thing over here and then i went back to my edit and i have to say i the like the third round trip of that was super compelling you know, like, like that I didn't have to, I didn't have to do that. So, so still, I still do a lot of stuff in motion in Final Cut. Um, but I will say that for when I'm doing precision releases, I'm, I'm, I've, I've, people have watched me evolve over this over the last couple of years, but I, I use Resolve more and more for precision work um, just because it's the, the Final Cut stuff is a little harder when you start dealing with heavier track loads and, and have an HDR. Um, next question. Lois Richter from Davis, California uh, asks, what is a chip chart? chip chart and how does one use it i go ahead courtney you must rate your chocolate chip cookies on a chart no yeah, when i started in television I that chip chart. <laughs> when i started in television it was analog and it was black and white and uh, <laughs> i started uh i created my own chip chart for doing monitors uh and it looks something like this uh, I created this one because it has 10 steps on it, and most black and white chip charts only have about uh, five to seven chips on it. And what it is, is it, is it equally divides the uh, brightness uh, between 100% white and 0% black in equal steps across the uh, 
the range of illuminance. So you put this up on a monitor, and so you, if, it, if you have your brightness and contrast and your gamma adjusted properly, you will see the demarcation between each chip. If the chips start to blend together here on the low end, you know you're, it's crushing your blacks. And, and if you're losing, uh, um, if, it, if it blends together on the top end, you know you, you're overdriving the whites. So that's how I used a chip chart to adjust for, um, for monitors for color. And, and you, you can look at them on a scope too, and it'll fall into individual uh, um, places on a, on a scope. There's also uh, the ability to do a color chip chart, which is today for adjusting cameras. And Alex or, some, or Sky, Bill, any of our editors can speak more on that. This is one for adjusting a spider uh, checker on a monitor, but you can use it for camera adjustment as well in post-production. Sorry, my, my kit is uh, not quite finished yet, and I'm on one monitor, which I'm not used to. Go ahead, Sky. Nice task. And I do have that spider uh, chip chart. Unlike the Dumont, which is a, it's many hundreds of dollars, this spider chip chart was, what, $43 from Amazon. And it, again, it does come in a sleeve, and it does come with the primary colors. And again, it does connect to Resolve. It also has the grayscale, as, as Courtney was talking about, on the back again. So you can see your your, your the different uh, levels of luminance there. But again, it is allowing you to set a standard so that you can take it into your post-production and then tweak it from there. And I'm going to let somebody else talk about how it also can be connected automatic automatically, at least within Resolve, to help your color correction in post-production. Go ahead, Bill. Well, and that's maybe what I'll talk to a little bit. In the early days, we had what were called Simpty color bars. And it was a nice little thing. Everybody knew what it looked like. But the important thing was that if you had a vector scope in your shop and you pointed a camera at a set of Simpty color bars, there were a set of little targets on the front of the vector scope. And if the traces got bright only inside of those targets, you knew the camera was properly balanced for reproducing colors. If you saw a trace outside of the box, you knew something was wrong. So at the heart of these, they are technical measurement tools designed in a system that allows you to make sure that each camera and delivery pipeline is properly set up so that what you're seeing is an actual reflection of the electronics and the signals behind things. They're test charts. They're not actually just, you know, that, that's their purpose. And uh, in terms of the color ones, yes, uh, you know, because there was a specific target they had to be in, people who are very clever have written software now that if you throw up a chart and your camera is off, it will analyze it and say, how far off is it? And let's just make a digital adjustment to make it right. So you can hold these up and take a shot of them and that'll help you balance your camera. Yeah, and one of the things about the chip chart is usually they cover the colors that are the most important to us. And so we, um, you know, the chip charts that we normally see for, for photography are in a square format. And that's some of the stuff you saw earlier. The ones that we, that I use for most of my productions, as was mentioned before, is a DSC Labs uh, Dumont chart, you know, Chroma Dumont chart, which has, it's in a format that allows me to look at a vector scope and see how far on or off I am from very specific color values. And so, um, and those are highly calibrated. And because they're highly calibrated, um, they are expensive. So the, you know, they cost, they start at seven or eight hundred dollars and go up from there. Um, and so it just depends on on what you're trying to do um, you know, with those. They are pretty important for live video production because trying to get your cameras to match is a is a thing. 
Um, and, um, and so I think that uh, the automatic stuff works pretty well. It's never as good as a human, but it does. If you're not good at it, it's way better than you are. If you are good at it, it's not as good as you are. <laughs> so as far as the automatic uh, color chart, uh, color adjustments that have it, but it does kind of fix things if you haven't done a lot of it. Um, next question. Scott Mueller from Germantown, New York, writes, been considering buying a turntable and diving into the expensive rabbit hole of vinyl records again. Would it be sacrilege Bluetoothing it into my Mac and Genelec monitors, or should I buy an old-school phono amp and speakers with copper wires? Go ahead, Jeff. Uh, would it be sacrilege? Uh, no, uh, but I think if you're buying a turntable with integrated Bluetooth, you're probably not in the expensive rabbit hole of vinyl records. Um, I may get on a little rant here about vinyl records because I don't find vinyl, vinyl to be a high quality uh, playback medium for for consumers. It uh, has a lot of surface noise, high distortion, limited frequency response. Every time you play it, you are deteriorating the medium. Um, why do people love vinyl? Because it's something we can touch, right? We're so lost with uh, ephemeral, licensed, virtual, disconnected media that having a physical piece of media that we can pick up, we can touch, we can smell, hold, we can own it. There's a ritual to taking the vinyl out of the, the jacket, looking at the liner notes as you play it, you get 20 plus minutes of uninterrupted music. That's really why we like it. It's a connection to the art that's underneath it. Not about the sound. Good, Mitchell. Uh, like what Jeff is saying, um, first of all, Bluetooth is horrible. You don't want to use it for anything. It's a compressive format. Uh, even the APT, and there's a Sony version uh, that uh, reduces the sound quality. If you're going to run off of a turntable, you're reducing the sound quality even further. But in addition to the, the more um, subjective points that uh, Jeff brought up, um, vinyl just has its own sound. Um, and a lot of us grew up with it, so we like that sound. But a lot of it's being contributed by the mechanics of putting sound waves on a piece of vinyl uh, record and how it, uh, how it plays that back. It's very analog. It's not digital at, at all. But um, again, it's stuff that's being contributed because of the fact that it's on vinyl. Um, so uh, if you're in love with that sound and you like that and you're nostalgic about it, then by all means, use it and have fun with it. But a pair of wires is the best way to get there into a, a properly uh, adjusted RIAA phono preamp. Go Bill real quick. Plus five on Jeff's explanation. There is something kind of magical about the sound that you grew up with, and that's still around. I will say that if you're going to get into collecting vinyl, do uh, not only listen to it, but look at it. Because a scratch uh, skips, these things are possible with vinyl. Vinyl is soft. What plays it back is usually a diamond or some other kind of hard jewel needle that's very small and it has to track these little tiny micro grooves. And so they do deteriorate over time, as Jeff was saying, and you will not get the high end out typically of a record that you got the first month in the, the you know, if it's been played a hundred mm -hmm. times. So watch out. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. I agree with Jeff. Uh, I grew up on vinyl and I don't miss the bumps, scratches, distortion, uh, you know, any of those things that happen with analog vinyl at all. Embrace the future, get rid of the Bluetooth, go with the digital, kiss those vinyl records goodbye. I love the smell of a fresh vinyl record, though. They make great vases. I know that that's sacrilege. But if you heat them up over a, over a natural gas stove, you can push them between two 32-ounce 7-Eleven uh, cups and then 
flare them out a little bit and then you just got to fill in that little bottom and we used to get so many every day that that we were never going to play that, that we learned how to make artwork out of it go ahead jason yeah, they curl up so nicely when you heat them. Um, I it's would be less concerned. Yeah, they do. Um, mm-hmm. I'd be less concerned about the Bluetooth um, than about the cartridge that would come on a Bluetooth turntable. Um, that will destroy your vinyl. And at the end of the day, um, a part of me just wants to snub the snobs and say, you know, it, if you, if it gives you pleasure, do it. it. Who cares? There's something about it that's organic. You know, I have a. <laughs> I'm slowly getting a Zonophone working right behind me. I'll put it up higher in the shelf in the future but and there's something about the uh the, the prod that's the like the original vinyl <laughs> you know it's so uh, it's got the big horn that comes out of it and uh there's something about when you listen to it there's just this uh organic feel to it that is that's really fun um but yeah it's not something i would listen to music on a regular basis but it is something that's kind of fun and uh again organic next question and Jack Cannon from Phoenix says, I was listening to the replay of Artemis launch this morning, and the voice talking over was muting between each string of narration. It sounded unnatural. What would be a better approach so the sound isn't so dead? Go ahead, Mitchell. Well, the muting is because the uh, people in the control room all have push-to-talk microphones. Um, and if you had a bunch of people in there with live mics the whole time, it would be a cacophony of sounds. So, uh, the reason the, uh, uh, the head person has that switch, um, is so he's only heard when he needs to be heard. The way I would change it is add a little background sound, uh, in, in addition. So it doesn't call attention to the, uh, the muting of the main microphone. Good, Bill. And this is also a problem sometimes when you do multiple voices. I had a circumstance where I, I had recorded a spot that featured a female talent and the client came back and they wanted to change just some rate information. It was for a financial institution in the middle. So they asked me to cut the donut part of it as the voice talent. So we were going from her voice to my voice and back to her voice for the end of it. I had to spend a whole day. Yeah. trying to make the two of us fit together in a way that I didn't think it took them out of the experience of hearing this on the radio when it moved from her pitches to mine. I finally got it done, but it was harder than than I think people on the outside expect mm-hmm. to make a cohesive sound out of things that are different. So when you've got multiple people talking and they're not on the same system, you can run into these kind of problems. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I think uh, NASA makes available to the media pool a feed from the microphones with the cameras that are mounted on the field that you shoot from about a quarter of a mile away. So you'd hear, so you hear the takeoff, the the sound of the rockets once they ignite. But you could take that and mix it in in the background. You get some nice bird sounds and you know occasional car driving by. But that'd be something you could lay in underneath the uh, on and off uh, sounds of the mics in the control room. Yeah, and that's what I wasn't sure of reading it is whether we we're talking about someone who's doing commentary that that has a gate or some kind of mute that's on there or someone from the actual NASA um, control room. And that's what I wasn't clear of reading the question. For the gates, obviously, there's a lot of things you can do um, to to make that work and reducing that with a noise, some kind of cedar or some kind of noise assist or or other things can reduce that overall if you if 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 you have a commentator who's not part of it. Um, had a discussion with someone about the specifically about mics in the control room and part of it is is that you want it to go silent when someone hits it it's a subconscious it's a um a low level telling you someone's about to talk and so so there's actually not a lot of attempt to make it cleaner because when someone opens their mic it says i'm opening my mic now i'm going to say something now i'm going to close my mic 
And it's very clear that that's what's happening. And so it's actually part of the, uh, at least I was told it was part of the process. Now, next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vera, Florida. What do you say to execs that ask, why should I improve my mic or camera or lighting? Go ahead, Javier. I think with executives, always about perception. So I use like these three main arguments. The first one is the uh, the practical one. If you sound better, your message gets through. Uh, if you're too low, you sound timid. If you're too too loud, you can be like aggressive, especially if distorted. Uh, that's more the, like the psychoacoustic thing. The second argument would be the perception of the power suit. The power suit argument is like you can buy a suit in Walmart, but you won't use it if you're some kind of executive. And even the car you get to a meeting, uh, some people look at that. So I tell them like, imagine that this is your new business suit. You have to have good camera, good audio. And the third and the easiest one is let me record you, especially with someone uh, in the meeting that also like looks good. Because when everyone looks bad, it's hard to tell for people that are not like into this. But when someone looks good and the other one looks bad, the ones that look bad, they were like, I really want to look like that. So like, they're the main, main three arguments. Hey, good, Mitchell. Yeah, you know, a scenario that plays out all the time uh, when I'm dealing with executives is that they don't know until they see it uh, in comparison to something else. If I'm shooting a video and they submit their uh, format uh, on a Zoom call, for example, um, as their video for the final production, everybody else has been shot with a crew and, uh, and with a camera. And when I slug his shot in there, which was done off the air, off of Zoom, um, it just doesn't look well. And then they see it, and then they understand uh, the relative uh, quality difference between the two. And generally, they ask me, why didn't you tell me? And I said, I did. This guy. I, Javier really nailed it with regards to the, the chance of, of saying something and being heard. That's the other challenge is uh, even Bill Gates, as a young man, he didn't care about his looks. His hair was all over the place until, until he got married. And then his wife, I think, had an influence on, on some of that, as well as he had all of the resources to, to make him look good. But he wasn't an actor. He wasn't the, the performer, but he was a passionate person to, to communicate to his, uh, his people. So that was the, the, the Brooks. This is the new Brooks Brothers. This is the first chance to make a good first impression. So those are phrases and technologies that, that uh, I, would, I would use. But again, sometimes you can't lead a horse and let him drink. Yeah, I, I I have a strong opinion that the reason that one of one not all but one of the reasons people don't take the press or politicians very seriously and don't trust them at this point was two years of watching them through web cameras and their mics in there and it just made them feel made them look very small you know and I think it just makes you look small and and executives don't usually like to hear that <laughs> like very bad bad audio and bad video and bad lighting make you look small you know and if and just as what was said before is if you uh, if everyone else else looks small, you'll be fine. But if someone comes in not looking small, they're going to run the meeting like and, and, and as a C-suite executive, do you want to run the meeting or do you want them to run the meeting? But if they have a big mic and they stay well lit with a good camera, people are going to believe them more than they believe you. That's the that's and it's it's rock solid fact. Um, next question. David Brady from New York City says, Zoom streaming. When using Zoom's built-in ability to stream to YouTube, Facebook, etc., is the encode done on local computer or in the cloud, trying to encourage others to get out of the habit of relying on that workflow? 
It's encoded, I believe it's encoded in the cloud. It's not encoded on your computer. So it is another participant in the in the event that is then um, streaming out to the variety of um, of locations. And so, you know, for someone who doesn't have any technical capabilities, I think it's a it's a re, it's a reasonable solution. But once you start wanting to do anything that's a little bit more um, nuanced, you probably want to have more control. Next question. Colin Mulcahy from Dublin, Ireland writes, I have a friend competing at the Conductors Academy in Zurich. They're live streaming the master classes. It sounds great. The cameras make me feel like I'm actually amongst the musicians with a gata. Thoughts? And there's a YouTube link. Go ahead, Jeff. So I took a brief glance at this, and I think what you're seeing is this reverse shot uh, over the musicians at the conductor. And that's something we don't often, you never get to see that when you are a an audience member, unless there happens to be one of the unique venues that has seating behind the orchestra. But this week, it gives us this view of being a musician and you can see the, the, the face of the conductor and get a much better impression of what they're doing in that. And uh, I know even from live streaming I've done of orchestra that, that viewers love that shot that they can see uh, what the musicians are seeing and see the expression that the conductor brings to the music. Yeah, it looks really, it's a really interesting way to, to view the experience. It's really good. Um, next question. Tommy Schatz from St. Paul, Minnesota. A venue mix is not acceptable for webcast. It has a PreSonus 16.4.2. Is running a mix through a DAW a viable solution? If not, how would you do it? Go ahead, Jeff. So running through a DAW, you can do it. A couple of caveats. Um, you're going to have the buffer of the computer is going to provide delay. And that may be a good thing if you need to add audio delay anyways uh, to match your video delay. Um, and a larger buffer will make your DAW more stable, but you're still running all of your audio through software and a computer, which if it crashes or has a problem, you lose all your audio. So probably better to use an auxiliary send on the personas to make a different mix than what's going out in the house through the personas. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that we've, I've done a lot of mixes where we've had it go through Pro Tools live and it's just that it's not, you just really feel like the software is not really built for that. So it does do it and it can push that stuff through. Um, but every once in a while, it just drops out for a couple seconds. <laughs> it's like, it's just like, nope, I'm going to reset something. Something gets out of whack and, and a live mixer is going to be a, a different experience. I would, I would rather use an X32 or some kind of, you know, than I would run it through Pro Tools unless I was doing surround, you know, so surround, sometimes you need to have more tools to do that. And we're experimenting with a couple different things to, to make that work better. But, but um, the, on a straight stereo mix, I'd rather use a, a an inexpensive mixer than I would a, um, the, a piece of software for it because of exactly what Jeff had outlined. Go ahead, Jeff. And I've done this, I've used Pro Tools, uh, fed that audio into a camera, uh, and I've also always had a backup, some other path that came from microphones into another, even if it was just a stereo pair that went into another input of my video switcher that I could, I could default to at the moment I had a problem with Pro Tools, I could immediately get sound. 
and and you know the thing that we've used for years for a lot of those sub mixes and it depends on how big the venue mix is too is how many channels that you're gonna are gonna be delivered to you is it gonna be over 60 is it gonna be over 40 is it you know how many channels are you getting from that venue mix but um you know the one that we've used day in day out for a lot of these things are like a ql1 or ql5 um you know the ql you know those are those are um, more expensive we rent them to, or we owned a couple we own one now but but the um but they are very functional mixers with most of what you would need and we're usually able to produce great webcast uh, content with them as well. Now, next question. Colin Mulcahy from Dublin, Ireland. With ATM pipeline, camera to ATM, ATM to encoder, and embedding of audio, how and with what do I make sure that audio and video are synced? Where in the chain is the ideal place to record everything as the ATM adds a couple of frames for processing? Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. I know it's not typically done, but I like to do it this way. The uh, output of my preamp for the mic goes into my Sony. Uh, and instead of use the uh, the normal Sony input, the little uh, three and a half inch uh, doodad on the side of it, um, I'm using that digital add-on that they have and in the FX3 that comes with it. Um, and it provides a much cleaner audio signal. And the reason that I use it is because it's in sync. It's uh, It puts the output uh, multiplexed onto the HDMI, which goes into the ATEM, and the audio and the video stay synchronous the whole time. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, if you're using the ATEM uh, analog inputs, the little 3.5 millimeter uh, inputs, mic one, mic two, uh, you can do delay. There is delay built into the software for the ATEM up to, I don't know, was it 10 frames? Something like that. Uh, so you can use that, but then you're... Uh, suffering by using the analog inputs. Unfortunately, the digital inputs that come in over the HDMI inputs, you cannot add delay to, so you'd have to hook up an external delay device of some sort to delay your audio to match it. And all the good, cheap audio delay devices, like the Shark, have disappeared. Next question. John Snyder from Reno, Nevada. Can Alex draw something to show how Telestrator looks on his new background? Ask me that on uh, Saturday, <laughs> or or actually ask me ask me that on Friday. It's not set up yet. I have the Mac Mini here. I have the things set up. I just haven't tied it all back in yet. So, but um, yeah, I'm I'm trying to figure out a way. Um, I think it's actually going to look okay. I have to play with the colors of it to make it to make it. And I think it'll look okay. But if it doesn't, I'm thinking of putting some kind of gray area behind me on this this half, this half. It's it's very hard to do this this half move. Courtney's cool uh, oscilloscope over to the other side, and um, and then have like this gray area that I can talk, I can draw into that's still out of focus, but but back there and and there. So I'm I'm thinking about you know what that will actually look like. You'll probably for the next couple of weeks, maybe the next couple of months, see me constantly playing with this background and all the bits and pieces that are that are there. It's kind of what happens when I when I move something. It's not doesn't happen all at one time. I don't usually don't have time to do that. So it's an hour here, an hour there of, oh, I got to, like today I'm on Stream Media West. I'm going to be joining them remotely from Zoom, over Zoom. And uh, you'll see a bunch of me re re rearrange a bunch of stuff before I'm on. <laughs> so if, if you're at Stream Media West, you'll see that. I think it's, uh, I don't know whether they're streaming the streaming thing. I don't, I don't know how that works. But anyway, that's, that's something to look for. Um, and I will be on at 10.30 and I think 10.30, 11.30, something like that. Anyway, next question. 
Mark Giuliani in Washington, D.C. If you want to create virtual sets using three cameras and BMD Ultimat for green screen, would you need one Ultimat for each camera? Mitchell? Mark, I'll take a shot at this one. Uh, they do have a new hardware-based Ultimat device. In fact, they've got three of them. And I think the top-of-the-line one will take multiple inputs on it. But at the very least, the middle 4K unit um, is inexpensive enough that you could put one on each camera and uh, feed different background plates in each one or real engine into each one as needed. So the answer to your question is yes, you could you could do it. Um, they even touted on their website. I wish I could provide more information exactly how you do that, but um, I'm just uh, very impressed with the quality of the keys that are coming out of those devices. Good, Courtney. I think the um, SuperSource and the Ultimate Extreme uh, supports uh, uh, DVEs, the DVE on three separate channels, so you could feed three different background sources in and have them switch uh, and adjust their keys accordingly uh, and put a different different background image behind each one uh, in the super source. Someone can correct me if I'm wrong there because I don't have the extreme, but I think it supports that in the super source. Yeah, I I was told, and I asked some folks that, that you couldn't do that, but I'm not 100% certain, and I'm going to see if I can get a hold of one that we can borrow for a little while and see if we can't test it, um, because it, it would be really great to have one machine that did that. It'd be slightly less expensive. If I was left in my own devices, I would probably just get a separate one for each camera. They are so inexpensive compared to what they used to be. I, you know, to be the, be the crotchety old uh, production person, I, I bought one channel, 444, at 1080p for $33,000. Um, so the fact that they're now... $2,000 for HD or for, for UHD or whatever is, is a pretty good big deal, two or $3,000. And so I'd probably get one for each one. And, and I'd probably, you probably find that the work, even if it worked in one unit, you're probably going to find that the workflow is much better in um, multiple units of just being able to control them. So I, I probably recommend if you're really serious about it, um, that you do that. Other things to think about, remember, is that you can have stills behind people, but if you have do any moves or anything else that you're going to have parallax issues, so one of the things you want to think about is the the, the best solution probably for a, a relatively straightforward one is the Panasonic um, uh, 150s. The the PTZs have telemetry data that it's passed back, so they know where they are, and then you feed that into Unreal, and then you feed that into the Ultimate. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, the middle Ultimate is four hundred and fifty dollars versus the, the thirty or forty thousand dollars we spent in the uh, the yeah. old days. Yeah, and they, that's the HD one. Yeah, the the and and I think you'll get you'll get a key. It's it's a much better key than what you're getting from the switcher. I know the switcher looks like a great key, but the the Ultimate will do a better key. If you can, you want to do the show at 4K and then go down to 1080, um, because that's going to give you a, an effective uh, 444 because the, it's processing at 422 which means you have half the color data. So the 422 doesn't matter most of the time, but it does when you're keying because you're basically keying a half resolution um, green. So what you, by doing it at 4K and coming down, you're going to oversample and you're going to get a much better edge and hair detail and so on and so forth than what you'll get with the HD. It's not the end of the world. Most people won't, the average person won't notice, but if you really want to push the envelope on it, you want to do it at, at 4K. It'd be really great to do that at 8K for 4K, but there's no 8K cameras. I don't understand how Blackmagic keeps on having all these 8K tools without cameras. All right, next question. 
Douglas Carmichael writes, Unreal Engine 5.1 introduces an experimental native Apple Silicon version of the editor, but you have to build the engine from source code. Why could that be? And will we see a native engine editor to compete with Unity? Uh, go ahead, Bill. I'm not sure, but I suspected when I read this question, I thought, oh, clever of those folks. This may be a subtle recruitment funnel. Uh, I know they're always looking for high-end engineering talent. And if you can identify people who can write in source code, which is its own skill set, and are fascinated with Unreal Engine and can work in that virtual space, I would imagine they would want to know about you. We keep hearing I, all these things about people recruiting and trying to find the right talent. I, I wonder whether... I wonder what it has something to do with signing Apple not signing those that um, because you know they un oh, Epic broke rules, and I'm wondering whether there's a signing issue that they can't actually build, they can't deliver it. They have to um, deliver it to you in pieces and let you do it because they're in this legal back and forth with Apple. Fascinating um, I, so, take. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it might be something. I don't think they would do it on purpose. <laughs> like, I think that there's, I think they're doing it because they don't have a choice. Um, so it's going to be interesting. It is, it is an interesting thing. I will say that on Unreal, I mean, Epic, I really feel like this fight that they got into with Apple, I know that they see it as an existential threat because what they want to do is sell products into the, into the pipeline and they don't want to pay 15% or 30% to Apple. But wow, they gave up almost absolute control over this market um, and and really gave Unity a big shot in the arm. So it's really, it's a really, I feel like it's a very much of an unforced error. Um, and for, the, for our producers, uh, really focus on voting because we're running out of time. We're not gonna get to all the questions. So next question. <clears throat> Paul Walhus in Austin writes, what new products, software, hardware, et cetera, do you wish you had heard about sooner? And how do you avoid future FOMO? Go ahead, Mitchell. Apple stock. <laughs> Here's the worst part is when I, in, in, in 1997, when Apple was diving, I had a friend that had some cash. He's like, what, I, all, all my Apple stock has gone down by whatever. And he said, what should you do with, what should I do with, what should I do? And I said, buy more, buy more right now, buy more right now. He doesn't work anymore. I didn't have the money to put into it, but I told him what to do. And he's got a vineyard. So anyway, next question. Douglas Carmichael, at the NASA Artemis One launch, the media remote cameras were in these enclosures, and he has a link to a picture. Who makes them, and how would they protect the camera from the heat? Uh, my guess is that NASA makes them. <laughs> They're probably custom builds uh, exactly for that use. Um, next question. Eduardo Augustine from Panama, Pennsylvania writes, Alex, were you able to check out the Stream Deck Plus? Now Stream Deck has a hybrid control. What are your thoughts? And there's a link. I think we talked about this a little earlier. I am going to get one. We'll test it because it looks amazing. So I'm pretty excited about it. Next question. Chris Widener from Lafayette, Indiana. When putting a TV as a background behind someone, what geometry are you looking for? That is, what distance to person with what brightness and ideally what size 4K TV? Uh, yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, the tightest pixel pitch you can get to, to avoid moray. Yeah, I mean, you'll have moray a little bit from it no matter what. Um, I, you know, the minimum is 75 inches. Like I do not build one with less than so. I, we've tried them with 60 and they have to be right behind the person. Uh, 85 is where we, what we had in our last insert studio and it was really comfortable. Like it just, it was a nice comfortable space. We like to have a fair bit of room. So 
a minimum of two feet, if not three feet behind them. A lot of insert studios don't do that, but we like to because it reduces the amount of reflection of them on the screen. It also reduces um, the potential glare when we're lighting them. We're really able to light that person separately and not end up with that glare on the TV behind it. So there, but so that you, you lack the ambient occlusion issues that you would have otherwise, as well as the reflections. We then take that, that monitor and we tilt it about 10 to 15 degrees down now, and that's because angle of incidence equals angle of reflection. So as lights come in, if we can tilt it just a little bit down, you won't notice it if you don't see the edges, but you'll bounce all that stuff off just a little bit. Um, and that that we work that works pretty effectively for us. Um, we're usually running the 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 TV at about 15 to 20% brightness. It, it doesn't need to be very bright to uh, catch up with the lights. Um, otherwise, you start turning the lights up, which is really uncomfortable. What we want are very large sources of light for the talent um, that are not very bright. And so we bring that monitor down to to make that work. Um, as said before, uh, we like to use we use 1080p in the past in the past, but 4K works better because you end up with a lot less um, array. Um, let's go. Let's go ahead. Uh, go ahead, to Mitchell, real quick. No, I've already been in. Oh, Thank you. Sorry, Courtney. Uh, yeah, and adjust the color temperature to warm. Uh, most monitors have a white point of 9300 Kelvin, so if you're not lighting with daylight balanced lights, you want to warm it up quite a bit. Otherwise, any skin tones are going to look uh, very blue and pale, and all your graphics will be, look blue. And adjust the brightness and contrast through your camera's image of the monitor. That way you don't blow out your... Use the chip chart that we were showing earlier so that the camera doesn't blow out uh, the contrast and the and the brightness the and or crush the blacks uh, yeah and as Ma, as alex said usually set it uh, usually set it down to about 15% because uh, you want it a lot dimmer than you would think uh, also set it to game mode if you're going to have any talking heads on it that'll uh, eliminate a lot of the delay that happens in most tv monitors so uh, it'll pull that processing out of the TV monitor itself and it'll speed it up so that you don't have latency of the sync issues of anyone who's speaking behind them. Good deal. And if you can't turn it down that much, you can also take a sheet of new, uh, neutral density. They come in like 48-inch rolls. Cut a piece exactly to fit. Use a squeegee to put it on there if you can't it, dial your TV down. And that's super, it, it's really hard to do that well. <laughs> like you know, like look, we tried it. I will say that's a hard one to to get to work well. Um, the uh, um, yeah, we do definitely color. We set the color for the the talent separately with a chip chart and with a person with the monitor off, and then we adjust the monitor to whatever it needs to do to look natural. We can do that either in the sometimes we do it in the in the TV. Sometimes we just do it in what we're supplying to the TV. So if we're pushing something, we can usually have more control over the color of the image on a piece of software that we're sending to it, as opposed to trying to use stupid little things on the TV. Um, anyway, next question. Paul Walhus from Austin TX says, why does this gain, excuse me, why does this GAN charger come with Ethernet? And he has a link. Go ahead, Jeff. Because it's more than a charger, it's actually a hub as well. It just uh, plugs directly into the wall, so it's very compact for travel. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, James Holt of X32 Theater Control fame, has created Theater Mix to bring DCA-based theater mixing to consoles that don't support it natively. And he has a link. Has anyone ever mixed theater? How does it differ from conferences and music? That is probably a second hour. <laughs> we only have a couple minutes. We'll probably push that one out. Put that. Put a suggestion on how make, how different mixes work. Uh, potentially in our second hour suggestions, and we'll uh, talk through it there. Next question. 
Paul Valhus, excuse me, Walhus in Austin, Texas. What's your philosophy of charging devices? Do you peg them at 100% or do you just go up to about 80% or what? And what do you and do you slow charge or fast charge? And what about MagSafe charging? Does the convenience outweigh the slowness of charging? Uh, go ahead, uh, Bill. Yeah, I think things are changing. I mean, it used to be that you just had these kind of stable charging bricks and you just plugged them in and then you unplugged them when you took it out and plugged them back in. But it's gotten very sophisticated, particularly in the Apple and iPhone kind of ecosystem. And you notice that when they move to this new MagSafe uh, for charging, uh, the Apple cases for your phone have a little circular ring there that has a little ridge there. And I think they're trying to build out an ecosystem where the magnetic mount is stable and you can have one of those at the bedside, one of them yeah. in your car and, and just slap your phone on different things and it'll constantly trickle charge. It's not as fast, yeah. but it'll be constant. And I want to define MagSafe. MagSafe is a, is, a, is a patented process by which power is delivered to a laptop. So, so, you know, that is a, that is Apple is MagSafe and that's to your laptop. Inductive charging is what we're talking about. I think is what you're talking about here. Um, and, uh, and that is convenient uh, or Q, Q, QI charging. I don't know exactly. Um, Qi. Qi, Qi charging. charging. Yeah. So, um, and it is horribly slow and, and it, things fall off and the only place I use it is my watch. Uh, go ahead, uh, Courtney. Uh, if I'm charging something and I'm going to use it right away, I charge it to 100%. I charge it to 80%, which is a recommended uh, percentage of charge. If you're going to leave something for a long period of time, put it away in a cabinet or something and bring it out. You expect it to work when you bring it out. Uh, you don't want to fully charge it because uh, it's worse for the batteries to leave it fully charged for a long period of time. So 80% if you're going to put it away for a while uh, and 100% uh, if you're going to use it right away. Okay. We're now changing subjects to Dante. Uh, Dante, of course, is um, we, we had a discussion about this earlier, but we're coming back to answer more of your questions um, about uh, the process. And if, for the panelists, if you have things you want to talk about related to this, I'm not sure where we are in this process of how it was. I missed the first one. I think I was out. Um, and so, um, so if you have things that you want to cover there, let us know. Uh, go ahead and throw it into the into the into the area there. Um, but uh, of course, for those of you who um, uh, who are un unfamiliar with Dante. Dante, of course, is a network protocol to move audio around, which is something that's, and someone's got an open mic. Um, and uh, yeah, there we go. thank you. <laughs> and so um, anyway, the, uh, uh, and so let's go, let's go ahead. And, and did we have something, I'm, and I apologize. I just know that we were talking about this today. I'm not, I don't manage the second hours anymore. And so I'm not totally clear what the plan was for this, is there a presentation or any talk about the second part? Or are we just answering more questions about Dante? Do we do we know? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so anyway, so I'll, I'll work better at knowing what I'm getting myself into. Let's go ahead and jump into the questions and uh, and see where we're, where we're at. Go ahead. First question. Gordon Lake from Los Angeles, California. When using a DeckLink card to an ATEM for Zoom ISO, why did Office Hours choose Dante for the audio workflow? And would that be the recommendation for most setups? Yeah, I mean, Dante is the, um, Dante is really the, the, the standard for this at this point. I mean, there's a lot of other people who are playing around with other things, but to move, uh, you know, you have Ravenna and you have a lot of other things, but no one else is really, you know, one thing that they did well was get ahead of the market. And really, um, before it became something that 
uh, was pop before everybody needed it. They already had a protocol and they had hardware and they they were they had partnerships and they you know, did all the things that were necessary. They had vision to get ahead of that and really uh, build out that standard. And a lot of other people are trying to play with other things. I mean, all the companies have their own version of some kind of network device or whatever, but nothing else just gets to everything else or most other things. And so it's very difficult to get out of that ecosystem. Um, and while it is, uh, and, and there's no reason we don't we have very little reason to get out of that ecosystem um you know they have their issues when it comes to updating on the mac not that i'm bitter but um but they but they have um you know if you have hardware with dante chips you know built into it somewhere in the network it's a pretty pretty stable way to move a lot of audio around um to make all of that work next question next question comes from Sky Schuler in Seattle. How does Jeff K use Dante? Go ahead, Jeff. We use it everywhere. We literally use it everywhere uh, in our productions, whether it be corporate events or, or which are few and far between now, but definitely in a, our sporting world, it is on the edge. It's at the courts. Uh, we do a lot of pro professional tennis. And so at every court, we have boxes that are dropped down and that's where audio is ingested. It's converted to, I mean, our, our analog runs are 10 feet, 15 feet at most. It's converted to Dante as fast as possible. And from that point on, it's in the network and it's available to any of our machines that are on the local network. Uh, then we're also working and uh, slowly but surely bringing it over across the network into a WAN situation to be able to handle it in the cloud also. Uh, that has to be converted because Dante doesn't work in the cloud uh, as we would like it to. Uh, so we end up a lot of times having to do conversions over to NDI audio, and that's what we're using now to uh, bring that audio from the ground up. But we use it extensively. And so uh, as preparation being asked to be on the panel today, I did prepare uh, our our truck. I, I got back a couple of days ago, so uh, one of our trucks is outside. Out the back of my office is here, and uh, it's our 45-foot uh, Prevo bus and our tour bus. And so I have it hooked up, and so I'm available to show a little bit of what a small network looks like. Uh, this is uh, going to be interesting, to say the least. So this let the questions begin. I'll go through it as slow as I can, and as uh, and then we could take some questions about it. So, uh, I, and I'm going to be nice and not share this on my 4K screen. So this is going to be on a 1080 feed. And uh, there is the basic outline of our, our sources are all coming from the ground, which are, I actually don't have a lot of my small boxes hooked up uh, because they're, they're, they're made to go in the field. But this bigger part of, the, of our infrastructures, we do comms over Dante and we also do audio over Dante. So our TriCaster, uh, the TC2 Elite is in the middle of all of this. It has 64 audio channels. We use that for uh, the majority of our uh, just basic mixing. Our main mixer is our Soundcraft Expression on this truck or Yamaha on our other trucks. Uh, this one just happens to have an older uh, Expression 1 in it, which is also a 64 audio in and out. And then we also have this Radius, which is a Radius is made by Symmetrics. It's a DSP. Uh, so as a DSP, a dynamic signal processor, what its idea is, is it allows me to do all my submixing for my comms and create party lines and everything within that mixer. So I keep that completely separate from my audio that is going to broadcast, which is here. And that is a, 
a key factor to me, and I think uh, Alex would agree with me that that's the way to do it. Uh, the less chance of something going to air that's wrong, the better. Uh, then on our top side up here, our Dells, which are our encoders. Uh, we have four different ones in this truck. So each one of those have a 16 channel DVS running. And that's how we have audio patched both in and out of each one of those going into the radius and in the radius itself. Then as you can see, that's these guys here. I'll expand them out. And after you do this about 20 or 30 times in a day, you get kind of used to it. Uh, so each one of our Dells are feeding back in the radius and then the radius we actually use that for our audio monitoring and so we could choose from any of these sources that are coming in into our ears which are our ears again or comms over Dante so we have here our director these are the these are all the ST means uh, studio technologies so this is a 5304 which is a four channel uh, rack mount unit I come through each one of those with both three different party lines. So I have PL1, party line one, PL2, PL3, and then I have my submix that's going into my fourth ear. The fourth or fourth input, that's going into my ears. And that's so I could QC without having to be silly and wear like three different headsets on your head. I know if you've got, probably seen that, you know, those audio guys, gosh. But I just have one pair of good Sennheiser headsets that are my comps, the HD, HMD 300s, I believe is what we're using now. And uh, that's basically what's into to those two devices, so a director and engineering positions. Uh, we do have other positions that are out uh, that are connected now, which are our comps positions. And it's kind of the same thing. They either get two PLs or they get, uh, as this one's set up currently right now, they have two PLs that they're listening to. And so they get a submix of a certain area. And then, uh, so like for instance, uh, the ones that are C1 means court one, CC means center court. So court one gets a submix of that Dante output of their encoder. So they, at one point in time, where's my hits? There we go. So I'm sorry to do this on the pip, but this is the, the belt packs we use, which are the 370. So it's two channels. So one channel is the comms traffic. So this is PL1 for, for C1 or and our court one. And then this over here, this little knob is to be able to listen to the program audio. So that whenever uh, the announcers, commentators are talking about a specific action, the director can follow along. The camera operators know what to, the announcer, the commentator is talking about also. It just helps make a much better show when they can hear program audio. These are our smaller belt packs. And, uh, and we're actually moving to a different type of... Uh, uh, integration now with larger ones this is one of our newer ones that i absolutely love which is the 348 which has eight channels it's like a, a more traditional larger uh, rts eight channel uh key panel so that's what we're using now uh is the director position which is i really fall in love and then our last dante piece of all this pie is our fostex rack speaker so it's a, a 1u rack that is dante and I have that set up so it actually has a feed directly to it off the radius. And like I said, the radius is where all the audio is going in and out. So off the radius, we actually could send any audio source from anywhere in the truck. Anything that's happening and hitting our Dante network can go to that Fostec speaker for a preview and listen. And uh, that's pretty much the small uh, part. It's just you can see just a few little devices here and there. Uh, just a few little channels. That's all.
And let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Josh Kaufman from Pittsburgh uh, says, what are some common setup and configuration issues new and experienced users will trip over in Dante? Uh, go ahead, uh, Andy. Yeah, so we kind of anticipated this question. So uh, I set some things up here at home and purposely broke them so that we can show a few things. So let me uh, share my screen here. Let's see. There we go. Uh, and you'll have to tell me if that's big enough on screen. Is that a good resolution for the time being? Yes, okay. good. Okay, good. So um, if you turn on Dante, you've connected some devices and things like that, and you see this, um, the first place you should go is, well, first of all, you should make sure that you have created a subnet that is the same as Dante. That's one. Uh, two is, if you see this, it probably means you're just, Dante is looking at the wrong subnet. So this little box down here in the lower left-hand corner, um, this is one way to get to this. You click on that, and you will see what it's looking at. So right now it's looking at this 192 address. That happens to be my control network, not my Dante network. So what you do is you click in here, and you look at these other choices, uh, the one that is- We're not seeing Dante. those, Andy. You're not, oh, right. I got to share my entire screen then. Hold on a second. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, I think Jeff's computer might still be pinned. I'm not sure about that. No. No, I think it's, I think I'm just not, I'm only, sh I'll share the whole screen. Yeah, let me share the entire screen. So hold on, give me one second here. So what Andy, I, I take it what you're showing is you've, you've plugged in a bunch of Dante stuff and you fire up Dante controller and you think that you should see it all and you're not, which is a, a common thing that happens. And so you're like, where do I go now? Yeah, exactly. So uh, now can you see this? Yes, yeah, so a window just popped up to configure uh, Dante. Okay, so let me do that again. It's down here in the lower left. It's this little green box and you click on it. And so now it's, let me, if I hit okay, there we go. So now it sees all the devices on my network. I'm I'm literally speaking into this Behringer X32 right now. So um, that's the way to solve that problem. This will allow you to make routes and such. Um, now, another common Dante problem is you've got your system up and running like this. You've plugged in a new device and you don't see it in the routing table here. Um, if you go over to devices and you'll see this owls USB C 004, that's the one I'm looking for. And I don't see it in the routing table. So how do we fix that? Um, it is clearly not on the same network. If it were, you'd see it in here. Um, I just used this device on a gig and I had to turn it into a DHCP device. So I removed its address. It's no longer on this, it's no longer a 10, 10, 10 dot whatever device. So, so Andy, why would you ever want to use DHCP on a show site? Well, then we're going to get into an argument, but no, <laughs> because I'll tell you why, because the rig was not mine. And I didn't configure it. It was a rental rig. I had a CL5. I had some Rios. They all came 169. And I plugged, I wanted to use this dongle for Andy, one can of you sources. unpin so we can get oh, to oops. you rather than just yep. the computer? Sorry about that. Thank you. Yep. Uh, yeah. So 
Yeah, it was a rental rig. I had a CL5. I had some Rios. Um, I had some wire, uh, shore wireless mic receivers that were Dante enabled. And they were all came to me as 169 devices. You say 169 is a link local. Link so local. that means yeah. it's assigning its own address at that exactly. point in time. Exactly. So if you ever see that in your list also in Dante Controller, uh, if you see that in your list when you go to device info and you see a 169, it's probably bad. So, uh, well, at least it is for me because that means it's it's not getting a DHCP. And and I have had that happen before, even because of DHCP, because I, I was used to use Unify and uh, Unify just at times would just stop working DHCP. So if that was the case, I would end up with devices that would show up as 169. And DHCP is fantastic when it works. When it doesn't work, you're in a world of hurt. All right. Yeah, oh, Jeff, was that your comment? I see you're next on the list. A lot of comments. And I was going to jump in there and say that that's not a purely Dante thing. That is a network thing. That if a device is looking for a DHCP server and does not find one, it will default back to 169.254 or link local. And so that will work. Uh, that's a common thing that people do with very, very small Dante networks. And then when we move into larger things and we want to know where everything is, then we'll move into Jeff's system of having defined IP addresses. Jeff, do you use uh, defined IP addresses as in manually entered or do you use uh, a MAC address lookup? I haven't moved into the MAC address lookup. Uh, one of our good friends and a, a friend of, of Office Hours also, uh, Audio Greg, Greg Ballard, he's he is uh, uh, very insistent about the right way to do this is with using reserves. I, I personally, um, we're moving everything over into different, uh, we're using all Netgears now, and we're also uh, Netgear M4250 switches. And then we're also moving over into uh, our Peplinks is our, our actual router that's kind of holding all the glue together. So we're we're still really sorting out the best way to do that. But we had already, because of my problems I had with Unify not always working, the DHCP not always working, I already started moving everything to assigned IP addresses. So our devices by device are assigned. There's labels on it. Their MAC address is on the label. Their IP address is on the label. Their short name is on the label. Everything is on a printed label now. So if I go and say, hey, I need freelancer or, or employee, whatever, go to this court, look in this box. There's a silver label there. Tell me what's on it or send me a picture of it. Then I know if I can't see 10.100.2, 10.100.20, uh, which is my normal uh, range for my uh, my Dante, 20.30, which is that box. If I can't see it, it's a physical issue. And then I know I can't see it because I'll ping it from one of the machines that I could see that, that network from. So that's one of the big things to me. If it's DHCP, I mean, there are tools that you could find things on the network and, and even... Dante controller, if MDNS is working correctly, everything's working correctly, Dante controller could be that one of those tools. But I know if I could ping an IP address to me, then I know it's there. If I can't ping it, there's a physical problem first. Jeff Francis, do you want to come back in? I was going to lead into Andy was about to show us, I believe, the, the next common pitfall of 
what do we do about that device that we're not seeing? Proceed along. Great. Okay. Uh, can you see my Dante screen again? Not yet. We've got share again. Uh, there we go. Hold on. I got to hit the share button. There we go. I'll get the hang of this. Now it's later. up. Great. Okay. So again, here's this USB dongle. You know, it looks like a, you know, it's the typical Avio dongle, you know, the little black tubular thing that looks, it's a rectangular thing. So, um, so what we'll do is we'll go and we're going to double click on it. And we get very little information. So we go to the device config, network config. That's where we want to go. So now what we're going to do is we are going to attempt to reassign it. Now I can't. And that probably means because I haven't turned on, pardon me, I was not prepared for this. I should have a 169 address in here and I don't. Look at that. Oh, there it is. Let's see if this is going to work. I may not be prepared for this demo. We'll find out in a moment. Um, well, thankfully, we have a ton using, more questions coming in, so we'll be fine. You can come yeah, back to it. If I didn't, Jeff, you had a thought? If you're using DHCP, though, on that device, uh, usually just a reboot of that device. Yeah, if if it was in DHCP mode on your network, you still have DHCP mode on your local network. So one of the things, the tricks that I use, because I do use fixed IP addresses, is I only have fixed IP addresses from uh, .2 through 199. From 200 to 250, those are that's my range of my DHCP. So at a glance, if I ever see anything in my Dante range that is 201, 202, whatever, I know at some point in time somebody got lazy and eliminated my IP address off of it, and so I go back and put it in there. But at least I know I could find it if the DHCP work is working on the network. So that's, that's one thing, especially with real gear, like Andy is saying, if I need to bring in a couple more Rios or TOs that, that had DHCP set up, I could drop them down. I know they would get an address. And then I could look at my DHCP tables in my router and in my pep link, and I'd be able to find that address, dive into it, and then control it and set it to what it needs to be set to. Nice. Um, so can we the, get to some of the questions? That, oh, Jeff, you still have more. Sorry. The problem right, that Andy's no. having here is that he's using all fixed IP addresses. And so that device, since it is DHCP, it, he can't find it because it's on a different net. Um, and I recommended Andy probably not change himself to to a DHCP because he'll lose Zoom. <laughs> yeah, lose the, us connected. So that's true. I actually have a backup to that because I do this by habit. But I, I have my Scarlet and another mic all set up and ready to go. But rather than us taking a lot of time to do this now, um, the solution is is that what I've done is I'll disconnect my laptop from the network. And I'll just plug in that device and I will just turn on DHCP and then I will go in there, give it an address that's on the network and then reboot it. And you can do that from that screen once you do that. So sorry that I wasn't properly prepared for this. That's OK. We have a ton of questions here. We right. have 14 questions ahead of us. So people right. are really fascinated by this. So let's get into them. Lois, what's next? Matthias Jutila from Helsinki, Finland writes, can panelists describe how Maddie and Dante differ from each other and what are cost-effective ways to convert Dante to Maddie and vice versa? And Jeff's, what if Jeff's on the phone? Does either uh, of our of other experts, Andy or Jeff, do you have any thoughts on how this works? It appears Jeff Francis. Yes. 
so MADI is not a networked system. It is a interconnect that has a dedicated number of channels in that interconnect. Uh, are there cost-effective ways to convert from Dante to MADI? Well, what do you consider cost-effective? There are some boxes that will do a 64-channel MADI to 64 Dante, but they're easily $1,000 plus for that box. Okay, so there's to ways look. to solve the problem, but it takes resources. Yes. Okay, fair enough. Let's go on to the next question. And this is Bill, Meyer Lewin. Yeah. Bill Davis from San Diego says, are there any quality compromises in using Dante for audio delivery versus copper or other digital delivery formats? Jeff Francis. So my favorite thing about Dante is it is just a interconnection of pure digital audio. It has no processing or manipulation of the audio. So it gets the bits from one place to another. So there are no quality compromises in the audio um, versus other copper. Uh, you know, other ones can do exactly the same thing as well. Uh, you just don't want one that will do... Um, any kind of manipulation. Uh, one caveat I would give to that is there are a few of the little audio devices that because of the way they work require the system to do sample rate conversion on the way in or the way out. And that is something that has modified your audio in some way, hopefully as tra transparently as possible because our sample rate conversion is pretty good these days. Andy? Yeah, um, I would say it's better than some of the line level uh, inputs that you have on the back of a powered speaker, for example. And I did a test around this. It, it was a purely subjective test. Um, I bought a couple of Yamaha powered speakers. They have both an analog XLR input and a Dante port. And you can feed them audio from either of those. And I did some listening tests on that, and the Dante sounded more open um, and clear to me. Slightly, it was, it, it was, but it was there. Both um, highly acceptable, though, for professional audio delivery. Absolutely, you know, if you're just doing, for example, like a simple show where you're doing a ballroom system and all that. Absolutely, perfect. Uh, next question. And Matthias Jatila from Helsinki, Finland writes, any comment recommendations for Dante stage boxes to be used with X32? Jeff Keithley. I'm not a fan of the X32 platform. Uh, just not a fan, but that, that's the beauty of Dante. Dante is Dante. So if you have the devices that are out in the field that you need to be able to bring back, it depends on how large a stage box you need. Our, our go-to in all our field production stuff is a two-by-two two from Aterotech, uh, now a QSC company. And so Aterotech has the ability to log into that device by a piece of software so I can adjust the preamps up and down. That's the key that if you stay in the ecosystem, uh, say, for instance, our Yamahas talking to a Yamaha TO or a Rio, our, our Yamaha consoles can control the preamps in those remote devices. So in a Terotex, I have to log in through just a small little piece of software I have on every computer anyway. It's, it's just one more step. But most of ours, we're not sitting there and tweaking those preamps all the time. Uh, audio guys love to tweak things and twist knobs. I don't don't understand it. I'm not really an audio guy. I just pretend to be. But I'm not going to sit there and just twist the knob all the time messing with it so uh, it's job security or something i don't know what it's all about but anyway the 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 device that's dante is still dante so depending on your control and what you need 
for instance, I was saying that I'm using a Soundcraft in this truck because I just like that Soundcraft, always have. It's very easy to use, very easy to train people on. My remote box, if I needed a larger stage box, is a Tio, a Yamaha Tio. And then if I need to adjust the preamps on that, I use the Yamaha software to adjust it. So you just got to make sure that whatever you're using as a stage box is applicable. Let's gain an F and go from 1F Jeff to 2F Jeff. Jeff, <laughs> Jeff Francis. Yeah, I also love the TOs and the Rios, but as Jeff said, the Behringer will talk to the Behringer stage box and it will do that both through the digital audio. That's what I mean by uh, the audio will get there and also the remote control of the preamps, turning on phantom power, those sorts of things. However, Behringer's uh, built-in system is an AES-50, um, so that's what their box is going to talk. If you put in a Dante card into the Behringer, you can use any of these other stage boxes that Jeff mentioned. The big thing is the remote control. You're not going to have preamp control from the Behringer console. You're going to have to use another piece of software, which means having a computer active as well on the network. Also really important to remember that the remote control from of the stage box has its own IP address. So you have the Dante IP address, that's the network audio, and then you have the remote control. And if you ever get the remote control and the Dante on different networks, boy, you're in a world of hurt. But you can do that if you like, as long as you know what you're doing. But it's important to remember that there are multiple network communications going on here. Dante is just one of them. All the remote control configuration is another. Andy Lipnick. So uh, application matters in this case. And um, in Jeff's case, Jeff, 1F Jeff, um, you know, he's managing all of this from the truck. Uh, in my world, when I'm doing events, uh, we have to come in and set up very quickly. So me digging into another piece of software because I have two different manufacturers is not going to work. It's time consuming. And um, it's another layer to me. It's another layer of failure in a way because I have to go to this other thing and it's going to take my attention away from other matters. So um, in our world, we try and stay with the same manufacturer. Um, if it's Behringer, it's a Behringer stage box. If you even need a stage box, you can run, you know, a standard copper snake, multi-channel snake from front of house to the stage. You don't need the stage box unless you need extra inputs or you or you want to make it more convenient for you in some ways. Um, but yeah, and the, the Yamaha stuff, if you want to save money, um, you don't need, and you have a, U, a QL1, for example, out front, you don't need to buy a Rio. You can save about $1,000 to $1,500 and buy a Tio, and it'll work just fine. Um, it doesn't have as many features, but it'll work just fine. Nice. Uh, about to go on to the next question, but hey, 1F Jeff, it, you said you have the truck outside hooked up. Uh, do you don't have a camera out there by any chance so we could see some of the implementation of this stuff, do you? Actually, I have 12 cameras on that truck, but they're all underneath it, and I'm not going to go drag on them out. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I, there's nothing wrong with looking at circuit diagrams, but you know, you got a hardware crew here, and we love to see things in racks and stuff like that. So yeah, one, day. One, one day. One day. Okay, next time. Let's move on to the next question. Eric Buckus from Chicago says, can Jeff K. talk about the Dante routing setup for the TC2 Elite? Keely, you're up. Sure. All right. So on the TriCaster 2 Elite, uh, we're 
we're using it a lot for audio in and out, but so every single one, it has DDRs, which are the basically clip players or, or playlist players. So each one of those are isolated out and those are Dante out of each one of them back into the audio mixer. So the audio guy, if we have an A1, uh, like Andy, would he would actually have control of any of the packages that are playing audio back. You know, give him the knobs, let him twist, do his thing, earn his money. Uh, the other inputs, uh, as far as inputs, we're isolating. So I'm taking a feed from the Soundcraft, but I'm also, and this is the beauty of, of Dante, especially in, in our design, is everything goes everywhere. So our encoders get our five major microphones from every court. Our mixer gets the five major microphones from every court and the TriCaster gets the five major microphones from every court. And so that way at any point in time, if we have any device fail in the chain, we can actually very quickly press a macro and be back up and running with that device. So I, because the TriCaster has a software mixer built in, that's one way we use it. Now, with the Elite, we do have the ability, because it's running in ASIO mode or ASIO mode, that does give us a lot more outputs. So we can assign any input to a certain output if we wanted to isolate items. And this is like what we did the Pikes Peak race. Uh, we actually had devices that were coming back all NDI. So everything that came back to us on NDI, we needed to convert it to Dante to be able to mix it. And so those were like, uh, it's, it's a it's a car race, so we wanted a mic the phone that's, that was on the camera embedded in NDI. So all our transport off the mountain was all uh, wireless. So that audio came back to us in the truck, and then we converted it from NDI to Dante and mixed it in the Soundcraft and then turned around the Soundcraft output back into the, the TriCaster so that it could actually do the final sweetening mix at that point and taking the stereo mix off this, the SI Dante. So that's kind of the, the general idea behind it. But basically we use the ins and outs. So we take ISOs or stems out of the TriCaster back into the Soundcraft and then do the mix in the Soundcraft. And then the Soundcraft output, the master output is going to hit the actual TriCaster for output. So in this tennis use you're talking about, can you give us an overview of like the 10,000 foot? So you have five camera, uh, five audio microphones and multiple cameras on each of how many courts are you trying to cover through this? Uh, our average is three courts uh, is probably the majority of our events. And two of those are in full production, which is what we call full production. So there are multiple cameras, four to six cameras per court. And then the uh, third court is uh, just basically for our, our main client, which is gaming or betting. And okay. so they, they get a single camera with uh, a couple microphones. Uh, they, they have a chair mic. So the, the umpire that's on the court, they have a microphone that's ISO to them at all times for it's effectively for uh, making sure things weren't said that aren't not supposed to be said to players or players say to the umpire. Uh, so it's a protection thing to make sure they have a, a continuity. Uh, and then the same side of that is the, the nat mics, which are or our natural sound mics, which are two microphones uh, uh, in a stereo configuration on the back of the court. So that's basically a three is kind of the minimum. And then we go up from there. Uh, the larger broadcasts, like some that Sky just worked for me on, and also Andy has worked for me in the past, those events were putting three microphones on the chair. So there's one at each player bench, and then there's one for the, for the umpire. And then we also have uh, two at each baseline for stereo left on the high side, on the north side, and then 
stereo on the bottom side and then one per microphone uh one per camera on the side cams just to give it some more realistic sound so if they get over there close to that camera they one can bring up that microphone and and kind of get a behind the not necessarily behind the scenes but a little bit more closer in the in your face kind of thing so that's, and do the do the matches happen sequentially or do they happen concurrently are you covering back and forth between two matches or are you just doing one at a time Scott can uh, relate to this. There's two courts, and uh, we're doing back-to-back -back matches. We have about 10 minutes in between matches, and they are uh, our average is, like I was saying, is three courts. We're running uh, anywhere from 12 in a day, so like four per court is uh, kind of average. Uh, we're doing indoors right now, so right now we're doing six per court on a, on a busy day. And so, yeah, it just depends on the event. Okay, so that that gives everybody who's listening a kind of an idea of the overall complexity of how you're, you know, that's why you need all of this infrastructure because you've got a very complex event with a lot of moving parts. Let's go back to the audience questions. Next, Lois. Douglas Carmichael asks, when do you use an outboard interface like the RME Digiface Dante as opposed to DVS? And there's a link. And let's start with Jeff Keithley, go to Francis and then Andrew, Andy. My simplest is when you have an extra $1,600 in your pocket because it's expensive and it does a whole lot, but it's $1,600 for a USB device. Ouch. Uh, Jeff Francis. Uh, two reasons. One, it has the redundant network. So Dante is designed to work with both a primary and a secondary network and it will automatically fail over, but every device in your system needs to have both of those. So Dante Virtual Sound Card does not give you that option. Also, uh, channel count. So Dante Virtual Sound Card caps out at 64, and this hardware device will go to 256 channels. So if you're recording lots and lots and lots of channels or needing to output them from your computer, you need that device. Andy Lipney. Uh, for live events, it often comes down to what's they've sent me in the workbox. And that can be either Dante dongles, uh, which I like to use if I, have, if I have a limited amount of them, I like to use them for the computers that are streaming. Um, and uh, the other boxes I like a lot are um, Whirlwind makes a USB uh, DI box that is stereo. And that one's, it's a small form factor. They're really reliable. They sound good. Um, those are fine. Um, I'm not a big fan of, you know, a standard analog DI where you use the mini jack on the computer. But again, there are companies that send those out uh, to take audio from computers. And for our people watching, that's an interesting split. I mean, Jeff owns and runs this company, so he has to pay for all of these things. You as an operator can come in and you said there's a kind of a workbox of here are the tools you're going to use for this one. Do you carry a lot of your own equipment or do you generally use your client's equipment? I, I have, I, like like a lot of you, I have my kit that I bring and I have a few Dante dongles in there. Uh, and I also have some, you know, uh, a USB direct box that I carry just one. Um, and I even have some standard DI boxes, just one or two of those that I take on uh, every show. Fair enough. Uh, next question. Jay Cook from Laurel, Maryland. I have heard both successes and failures using Dante with Ubiquiti slash Unifi networking switches. Anyone have experience with them and suggestions making it successful? I'm using Unifi as that is what we are using on the networking side already. Keith Lee and then Andy. 
<laughs> I used to be huge on Unify, and I, I, mean, I still have it. I mean, I have it here at the office and stuff, but I, I don't. I really don't. I, I ran into the limits both on the NDI side and also the Dante side. Um, the clock being wonky at times because it, it actually uses the network clock and has the reference things. It's just if you can get away from it, run. Uh, if you can't and you have to use it, there are ways to make it work. Uh, the main thing is uh, with Unify, you just really shouldn't try to run more than just Dante on a VLAN. So you break up your VLANs and you just run Dante on it. If you have a data VLAN, you keep data just in that place. And then if you have NDI, you keep NDI just in that place. Uh, but I, I've i been really hurt by them. So I, I've got burn marks and, and crash marks everywhere. Uh, so I'm getting away from Unify as fast as possible. And I highly suggest anybody that's working in this field, run if you can. That's fascinating to me because, you know, a lot of us uh, were in kind of more established technical circumstances like broadcast television or something that stayed around for years. This seems to be changing literally amazingly fast that something you relied on maybe six months ago has been supplanted by something. Is that the truth that you that, haven't? That, what's exactly what happened is happened is we, we are outgrowing the needs and, and that's the problem I have with Unify is there's zero support. I mean, you're on your own, or you go to their their website and you you know just hope for somebody to answer your question that might have run into the same thing. That's my problem. The problem I have uh, with them, and in the same time, they're not moving forward fast enough. I need to be 10 gig everywhere, and so that's where we are now. Uh, every one of our switches have a 10 gig uplink back to our truck. Uh, so. They, they didn't have anything available. And so that was another reason. But the biggest thing is they would put out firmware that would just hose our whole system. And Ouch. that was, yeah, whatever you're in production and one update could take down your whole system, it's not good. That's just not good. <laughs> it's hard to explain to clients. Andy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't have anything to add really except to say that you don't need a big expensive switch for Dante. I mean, I have a couple of uh, Cisco SG350s, 10 port, and they're just fine and they're easy to config. Um, I'm not doing large systems like Jeff. So this is a very appropriate product for, for this. And I see a lot of Cisco switches in racks for Dante out in the field. Um, and they're affordable. Nice. Let's go to the next question. And Matthias Jutilla from Helsinki, Finland. Has has anyone gone through Audinate provided Dante training? And how did you find it? And Jeff Keithley. I found it on the Audinate website. And then their YouTube videos are super helpful. And if you haven't gone through it, do it. If you're even thinking about it, it's free. It's free training. Go through each one of them, and they have a great background. It's very well done. It's well worth every penny you pay for it. Uh, and Andy, yeah, I did the training. Uh, there's two level. There's three levels. I did Dante one online, and I did Dante two in person at an Infocom show when they weren't yet quite offering it online, and um, it was great. Um, I will warn you, I think if you go to an in-person training, they probably will try and sell you on some other stuff, but that's part of the deal. 
But uh, and the other thing I will say is that I did it a while ago, and my understanding is that they've that they've really tweaked and updated the training, and so I'm going to do both of them again, uh, just to see what uh, what's changed and what uh, what can I can improve upon. You know, I find that a fascinating strategy. I remember after I was learning Final Cut back in the early days of Final Cut 1.0, um, even after four or five years. I remember watching an NAB demo of it and I, I knew most of everything they were showing me, but there were two items that I caught in that demo that changed the way I worked. So that idea of continuing to go back to things and learning them, it's very powerful uh, if you have the time and can do it. Next question. Danny Law from Malaysia. Jeff K, do you folks run Dante Manager also to manage your Dante network and prevent accidental routing by other operators on Dante controller? Jeff? I uh, To prevent accidental routing, I, I use a lot of threats and stuff, and I, I'm a pretty big guy. So most of my employees know not to do that. Um, we have control of our whole network. So uh, there's anybody that's touching our network needs to touch it, and they should they should understand it. So I, I use a lot of generalists. So I don't have I just an A1 that I sit down and that that's all their job. I very rarely do we do that. And uh, they're pretty much doing everything my guys are. And so at that point, I try to give them the keys. And, and I want them to have the keys because my, my theme in my career is <laughs> we do drive a bus. So if you get hit by the bus, it's your fault. But if we get hit by a bus... Who can step in? And, and that became a bigger thing whenever we were dealing after the major part of COVID shutdown and we were coming back, we had to be prepared. It's like if somebody got COVID, the next person had to be able to run the whole show. And so that that's always been my thing is like if, if somebody goes down sick, we're, we're, we're a slim crew. We don't have a crew of 20 like an ESPN production does for a, you know, a large event. We, we're five or at most six or eight people on some of our larger crews, but most of the time we're three or four. So if we have somebody go down, we need to be able to do that. So that's the whole point about accidental. Everybody needs to know how to use it. Um, simple question on the DDM. Uh, Dante, the domain manager is super powerful. I did not see a price point that made it worthwhile to me. Just in the last two days though, they released a new, uh, by, you didn't have to buy it perpetually, but it's by subscription, so it's a little bit more affordable out of the out of the point at the beginning. Um, it's still the needs that are that I have. I don't have a reason to use it uh, for yet. Um, I do. I did use it one time. I used it in the cloud to try to get Dante working in the cloud, and we sort of did, but it never worked well, so we never used it in production. But that's that's my feelings on DDM. Sky. Yes, I'm here to confirm that Jeff is a big marshmallow, crusty on the outside, gooey on the inside. But he's he's uh, Jeff, again, that, that you're helping us learn and that I had the physical opportunity last week to to physically get my hands on this uh, concept. So, Bill, you're absolutely right. I am so used to coax running everywhere and power cables and everything. And to see an Ethernet cable run five different communications uh, sources back to the the hub it was it was pretty magical so uh yeah i'm learning unlearning faster than i'm learning so this is great and thank you for being a big marshmallow job and i like jeff's new call sign as toasted marshmallow very nice jeff francis <laughs> yes i think ddm is really designed for large uh 
institutions and large networks. So universities are going to be implementing that. Uh, and I will echo Sky. Uh, I've not met 1F Jeff yet in person, but uh, he's got a heart of gold and he's been really helpful throughout all of this. All right, let's move on. We got a lot of questions coming in. We still, I don't know if we're going to have to, I'm going to have to start cutting people off because there's so many people who want to know so much about this technology. So let's dive into the next one. Jeff Francis from Columbia, South Carolina says, Jeff K, do you have a primary slash secondary network in your rig? Mr. Keithley. It depends on which rig. Uh, we, we have several rigs. So uh, some of them do, some of them don't. Our Aterotech devices that we're using on there are edges, which are actually at a, each one of the courts. All those have single device uh, connections, so that doesn't help uh, if you're running primary, secondary. Our audio mixers have it, uh, but none of the computers do. So it's kind of like you know, pick your pick your battles. If your network works, you don't need secondary and redundant. So I just work on my network working first. Next question. Art Aldrich from New York. With Dante chip shortages, how do you work around product availability? Andy. Uh, so it's still difficult, but I'll just say this is that I put a link in the Mukana chat. Uh, Audinate is has built a new chip to address this. <clears throat> I don't know about its availability currently, but they announced this back in I think June, <clears throat> and you can look on the the press release for that. Um, I do know that certain manufacturers ha are having a real hard time. Yamaha, for one, if you try and order a Yamaha console, you're going to be waiting months at this point. Um, and you might have luck with, for example, getting a, you know, a Dante card for a Behringer X32. Uh, oh, Jeff's shaking his head. He's he's looked recently. Okay. So I, I no, got I haven't him. looked. I just, I wouldn't look. But no, I just had a, a, a client of mine that uses X32s and yeah, they can't find them. They can't find them. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I got mine in England and it was actually cheaper than getting it over here. And it was, it wasn't overpriced at the time, but that was a year ago. So who knows what's changed. So anyway, that's, I think that's the best answer we're going to get here keithley i'm hearing that at the they're saying first quarter so I, I anticipate that to be end of first quarter uh that the new chips that a terror that uh Audinate put out is supposed to be trickling in but that doesn't mean that they're just automatically going to go into devices because I, I i understand from my manufacturer sources that those chips are a different form factor so that means every manufacturer that is built that like these cards that slide into a console they're gonna have to rebuild that card and if it has a built-in device like our built-in card like our uh, tos do uh, those tos the dante chip is inside that that whole chip that whole card is going to be a redesign so it's not going to help anytime soon. How do we work around it? Lots of praying and a whole lot of searching and a lot of Googling. And, lot rent, of and renting. Yes. And yeah. I, I'm spending way more in rentals than I ever have before. Yeah. yeah that's interesting. Well, that makes sense on a, a fast moving thing. Uh, next question. Sky Gleason from Seattle. How far can you run a Cat5 Ethernet cable from source to the control room hub? Andy, you'll start us out. Uh, Dante is rated for 100 meters or 300 feet. Uh, so that's the answer. If you have to run any farther than that, um, I suggest fiber. Uh, Jeff Keithley? Go, go ahead. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm done. And Jeff's going to just going to add to this. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> well, for me in our productions, it's three foot. 
<laughs> so it's converted to fiber right away. Um, as soon as possible, it gets to the switch, the switch goes to fiber, and then it's for back. And now the the event that Sky worked with me last weekend on that was a, that's an indoor event, so that was that we didn't have to use a lot of fiber, and it's also a flight pack, so we flew into Canada to do that. So uh, we don't necessarily have to bring a lot of fiber, and it, because it's indoor, it's really close to our master control. So sometimes copper, and, and that was one of those events that uh, we bought a, a box of uh, Cat Five and or a couple boxes of Cat Five. We sourced that and built all the cables on site. We didn't even worry about bringing in cable from out of you know, from here, because uh, if you didn't know, Cat5 cable is fairly common everywhere. <laughs> you can find it pretty easily. Next question. Tommy Shantz from St. Paul, Minnesota. How many Avio units are in the office hours system? I'm not sure if anybody here is qualified to answer that. Alex was called away. Uh, so uh, best probably to take this, Tommy, and and move it into the hold position and do that when Alex is here. I know they're, everybody's working on things, but I don't think anybody else has an idea other than the inside team. So, uh, oh, let's move next. Mick, Mickey says four in the chat. Oh, okay, good. Mickey knew in the background. So four. Uh, next question. Jeff Francis from Columbia, South Carolina. Jeff K. and others. Is your Dante network connected to the LAN slash WAN or isolated? And since you asked the question, Jeff, I put you in first. What, what are you thinking? Uh, I was well, I wanted to hear Jeff's answer, but I know that my production systems are isolated. Uh, there is one computer that has two NICs on it. One touches the production network that's completely isolated from everything, and the other Nick touches the outside world. Um, and that's actually something I learned from uh, 1F Jeff. Jeff, take it away. All our machines are... There's, they're friends of mine that are like, no, don't do that. They're dual-homed. They actually have both VLANs are fully active. My Dante is active to the internet. My uh, Mark Roberts network or, or NDI network that we use for cameras is active to the internet. Um, if I have a problem with one of the two VLANs for whatever reason, whether it's a physical problem or a NIC problem or something like that, uh, or a switch problem, if that other one is working, I can still access that computer and diagnose the problem. But if it's not, it's just gone. So uh, every team we have team viewer on every machine, so I could always see that. So that's one reason I went back to making sure that Dante can see the internet at the same time. Okay, let's move on to the next question. Hersheed from Daytona Beach, Florida, writes, with regards to DI boxes like the Whirlwind and Switchcraft, you mentioned stereo coming out of the Whirlwind DI box. What is the impact on some two mono on those boxes with regards to Zoom meetings like this? Stereo versus mono. Does it really matter? Andy Lipnick. It doesn't matter if it's just people talking, but if you're going to play music and you want an immersive, you know, more, more of an immersive sound for your stereo music or video playback, then stereo does matter. Um, when I do events, I do actually set it up for stereo to send to Zoom. And um, what I will do is if the source going to that stereo left and right, it's, it is feeding both the left and right of that send to Zoom. I will drop the mono source, if it's going to both, by 3 dB on each, because then it will be equal volume to, relatively speaking, to a stereo source where the left side is feeding left and the right side is feeding right. Um, 
it's it helps me with game management so that um when i'm listening um to the person speaking and then we go to a video and, and just for sake of argument we want those to be equal volume it's much closer in equal volume when i do that that makes sense absolutely let's go uh oh that takes care of this question next question Douglas Carmichael writes, how would you get audio to and from an iPad or other iOS device on a Dante network? Would you use an RME Digiface Dante or would an AVO be enough? Jeff Keekley. For me, as uh, the USB, uh, iPad Pro, but USB-C uh, to uh, the AVO is just fantastic. Super easy. Or the Bluetooth if you don't want a cable. And Jeff Francis. Um, so first of all, not getting the RME saves you what, $1,600. And also the USB on the RME is designed to talk to a USB host. So I don't know that the iPad would talk to an RME and that would be a pretty cost ineffective way. So go with the Avio USB-C. Perfect. Got a good, simple answer out of that. Next question. Lois, are you there? Oops, Lois, I think you're muted. Uh, Lenny Nelson from San Antonio. Is there a more elegant Dante controller software solution? Would a more node-based routing panel be useful? Keith, you'll start us out. Well, Lenny, since you asked, and even though Lenny's my friend, he's not actually a shill. He actually, uh, I respect a lot of things that he does, and we've had a lot of good times working together in the past. I'm going to share my screen real quick. This is my Symmetrix screen. Uh, so the Symmetrix is, as I said earlier, my DSP that's running all my comms in the background. As you can see, I have devices coming in, and each one of these little lines are the audio lines that are coming out of those devices and being patched into the PLs, which are the party lines here in the middle, one, two, and three. And then I also have just generic comms in, either from Unity or VCOM, that are coming into those party lines, time in and out. And so these left side are the announcer boxes or commentator boxes, the BP1s, where the, this is an older system. These are our older 374s. Before before we moved to the 5304s uh, for boxes for the uh, engineering and director position. And at the bottom, you see the encoders. So this does help a lot when I'm teaching people uh, to kind of visualize where the audio is flowing. Uh, this is what I wanted to show you earlier. What I alluded to is that that Fostec speaker is using, this one actually had analog out. So I have that going to an analog uh, speaker in that truck. Uh, but now we're using the Dante out. And so I use the Dante mixer out here that's feeding those outputs uh, or those are actually inputs but i had another one it's just not set up right now but i take these two selectors and uh, let me show you the truck this is the truck so uh, the director station if they want to listen to any of the encoders they can select those and choose which encoder they want to use uh, at the same time i have the engineering monitoring any source that's coming in and the engineering monitoring, for instance, that's what I have patched into my uh, Fostec speaker. I was mentioning that Dante Fostec speaker. That's what I can listen to. And so if I need to ISO something, any particular of that, or that could go to a pair of headphones and patch that to that. And then lastly, 
the sub mix that I use, this is, I give this actual control to my commentator. I know that's crazy to a lot of people, but that is one thing I do because I don't want to have to listen to them ask, hey, can you turn up the nap mics? Hey, can you turn down the chair? Hey, uh, my talkback's really loud. And so I basically, and I've worked with this guy for eight years, so we know each other well. I gave him this control this year and it's been phenomenal for him. So at any point in time, if somebody gets in the chair that's an umpire that's really loud and likes to scream, he could go in there and bump down that audio channel to fit his ears and without having to bother us. And the less I have to talk to a commentator, the better. So that's that's one thing that we put into action this year, and it's been fantastic. Nice. Jeff Francis. It's important to remember that all the Dante routing is stored in the devices and not in Dante Controller. Dante Controller is just one method of making the connections. Jeff just showed us another. Um, Yamaha consoles have their own interface that's built into the consoles. If you hook up a Yamaha console and a Rio, and maybe even some Sure Wireless all via Dante, you can do all of that never booting up a computer because it's all built into the console itself. Fair enough. Let's move on. Uh, oh, Jeff, do you have a real quick thought before we move on to the next one? Yeah, I did. I did want to say that this is a common misconception. I had a client that just texted me out of frantic last year. Goes, hey, my Dante controller crashed. Will my audio still work? I was like, is it working? He goes, yes. I was like, okay. Well, then, yes. So <laughs> Dante controller is just manipulating those patch points. So it doesn't have to be on. You don't have to have a computer attached to the network for Dante to be flowing. Many, many times... We could fire up a whole system in it, like in the morning, because uh, we shut down at night. We fire up in the morning, everything works the next day. Now, when I got to make a change, I open up Dante Controller. So that's just keep that in mind. It's it is patched from device to device. Andy, you have another quick thought? Whoops, you're muted. On the show I just did, uh, this appeared on my controller screen. Um, all these things were in red. Uh, which is not good, but the system was still working. All the audio was still passing. This is just controller. So I just wanted to make that clear. If you see this, don't panic. It doesn't mean that you've lost connection to the things you previously connected. Uh, so, and by the way, what happened here was I just was checking something. I was sharing a Nick and I had to go uh, move away from this, uh, I, I'll get into it later. Uh, one other thing I wanted to say, too, is while I'm talking about this is with Macintosh computers, with MacBooks, sometimes this will happen when you're using Wi-Fi. And if you simply turn off Wi-Fi and turn it back on, this will, all your um, devices will turn green. It's a weird thing with the with the Mac. I don't exactly know why. I would love to know why. All right. Fair enough. Let's move on. we got, I think, two or three more questions to knock through, and then we're done for the day. And Douglas Carmichael, are there any APIs so that Dante network routing can be controlled by integrated tools like AMX or Crestron? Jeff Francis. So uh, Jeff Keithley just showed uh, the Symmetrics routing that will do that kind of routing. So each of those companies has their tools. I'm not sure about AMX, but Crestron can, yeah. Uh, fair enough. Next question. Paul Walhus from Austin, Texas. Can Jeff show us some pictures or videos or something of from his production bus? Got a beauty shot, Jeff, you can toss up or are you without? Not today, but Not today. Uh, okay. the, if he shows up with some Rudy's barbecue, I'll give him a whole tour. 
Oh, there you go. Uh, next week, though, come back on Wednesday. Hopefully, Jeff will have time to be here, and maybe we can talk him into showing us some pictures of the bus. Let's go on to the next question. Douglas Carmichael, has anyone experimented with passing Dante over long-distant links? And Andy Lipdink is going to help us with this. I'll first say I have not, but I have been following it. I think you're referring to Dante over distance. Uh, and what that is, is that there have been some productions where they have experimented with using Dante over great distances and usually involves like a GPS clock and all this other stuff. It is not for the faint of heart and it requires an enormous amount of control over your connections to, um, to these various devices and places. Um, you can't just do it over the public internet, for example. Uh, so that's the quick answer to that one. Keithley, last thought? Yeah, the one time that was done, it was actually using two GPS clocks and a private network. So that's not, I mean, yeah, it was long distances, hundreds of miles, but uh, it's still, it's a controlled environment. So it's not exactly what people think of long distance across the WAN. Uh, for us, it's a conversion. So we convert either to uh, audio connect from uh, the Unity platform. Uh, we can convert audio, Dante audio into that and then transport it that away. Uh, but my more common way is I'm using NDI gateway and using uh, our NDI cloud implementation. So we're bringing it into Dante into NDI. NDI is the transport device from that point. We're bringing it either to the cloud or to the studios that we're going to, and then we're converting it back to Dante for mixing there. Wow, what a show. So much fabulous technical information passed along here today. I am in awe of all you folks. You did an amazing job. The panel, the questions from the audience, everybody. I do have a couple of notes here, it looks like. Uh, with our new email service, I'm noted, many are reporting in the daily email. It's landing in a spam folder or categorized as promotion. Uh, set as not spam. If you'd like to get all those future notifications, don't forget the Kilo Show discussion thread happening on the After Hours server. Uh, submit your thoughts, ideas, and support for the 1,000th show. Shouldn't the Kilo show be the 1,024th show? I don't know. Uh, Discord thread, it's located in the future shows category in the office hours uh, Discord. Uh, Zoomtopia, the volunteer forum for participation in our Zoomtopia coverage can be found in the email, but that seems like it's Oh, there, maybe that's the ongoing uh, Zoomtopia thing coming up next week. I know Zoomtopia itself was last week. And uh, Friday, 2.5 update. Uh, where are we in the next major update? The office hours, Saturday, PowerPoint animation. And uh, I think tomorrow we're going to be talking about what's in your bag. We're going to be looking at the little stuff that helps us through production. Thank you all. Again, a, a huge thank to, to everybody who's on the panel, everybody who's behind the scenes in both systems, the people who are uh, working on the daily shows and the deeper bench. When we roll the credits here, and I'm going to go ahead and say cue the credits, there's a lot of people who make this show happen. We appreciate each and every one of them. Thank you all for watching, and we will see you tomorrow. Wow, a lot of information. Great job, guys. It's just the tip of the iceberg. That was awesome. Per whisper. I know it's for people to understand how complex these things get behind the scenes. This was a really good idea of... And an idea of why, if you're starting off in the industry, if you can master some of these technologies, you'll be working for a long time to come. Yeah, Bill, this is definitely the future. I think that uh, this shows that Dante begs to have a lab, a proper lab. Absolutely.
I remember walking into a gig at NAB and there wasn't an XLR inside. It was all Cat5 cable. What? Wait a second. And that was like six years ago. Things have changed. And Jeff, I said, you see pictures. So for next Everybody week. come back next week.